You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. That structure really kept me right on track. And so it made it very clear how to calendar, okay, if we have a show, if we have a performance of this first iteration of title of show and it's going up in two months and we have that date on the calendar, then I kind of know how I have to live my life in and amongst this office job. So I really thrive with the, a structure. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. A story to tell, a novel you keep in a drawer. Old sock drawer. You have a painting to paint. You are listening to Susan Blackwell, this week's guest on the Producer's Perspective podcast. The very fitting song, Die Vampire Die, from title of show. Uh, She's talking about for all of us out there that want to do great things in the theater, in art, and whatever we want to do, and we have these thoughts in our head that prevent us from taking that novel out of the drawer, that screenplay off the shelf, or whatever it is, and giving it a shot. She has some advice to those voices in your head. Die, vampire, die. Uh, she helped create that song and that show. You're going to hear all about that on this week's podcast. Uh, Speaking of how you conquer those fears and how you routine your life and get all the things done uh, that you want to do, you're going to hear about this in the podcast. Uh, Susan talks about one of the keys to her success is a routine. Uh, We've got a fabulous new tool for you to help develop that routine. It's called the Action Journal for Artists actionjournalforartists.com. Check it out. Download yours. It is the cheapest investment you will make 20 bucks into changing your life. I promise journals changed my life. This one, which is very specifically engineered for artists to make sure they accomplish everything they want to accomplish and more. Uh, It's specifically engineered for people just like you. So go check it out. Actionjournalforartists.com. And now... More on the vampires and Susan Blackwell. Shakespeare, Sondheim, and Sedaris did it before you and better than you. Or they might say that you cannot sing good enough to be in a musical. Or they might say... Who are your songs derivative? Who are your songs derivative? Who are your songs derivative? To keep that song from you, to tell them... Welcome back to the Producers Perspective Podcast. My name is Ken Davenport. I'm excited to be sitting down today with one of my favorite multi-hyphenates in the business. She's a performer. She's a writer. She's a web series star. She's an educator. She's an inspiration. She is Susan Blackwell. Welcome, Susan. Ken, I'm so happy to be here. So Susan is most known to Broadway fans out there as part of that quartet that gave us title of show and also her very fun web series interview show Side by Side by Susan on Broadway.com. 
uh, been in a ton of movies and television. Now she's taken everything she has learned and combined it with her corporate experience, which I can't wait to hear about oh, your early Lord. career. Yeah. Uh, and she's created Susan Blackwell and Company to, and I'm quoting, apply creative and performance technique to real-world challenges, end quote. You can learn a lot more about her and everything she's doing at SusanBlackwell.com. So, Susan, how did you get into the theater in the first place? What What drew you as a... As a young Lister, um, I I think my first foray, when we were little, my parents would take us to study Irish dancing, and, I, and as an extension of that, Irish singing and recitation, which I was very drawn to. Mm-hmm. Irish family, I am assuming? Ish. 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 But we loved, um, my parents, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. And then we moved, and I grew up in, really my formative years were in rural, rural Ohio. But my parents somehow found a way to get us to see Kenley Players, to get us to see, you know, uh, local community. I feel like we've seen every, (laughs) this is a shout out to my sister, Julie. We have seen every, we saw every production of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown at every high school and every community theater that was serving it when we were children. And so they really did a good job, even though we were remote, they did a good job of finding culture. And I remember seeing things and then they would take us to the World Affair every year, which was in Dayton, and we would sample the cultures of other worlds. They did a good job at really like bringing, finding culture and getting us to it. But we started uh, taking Irish dancing lessons, and then I started learning literally at a Hibernian bar. A, uh, like an older Irish man would teach me songs and Irish stories and poems. And then in the summer, our summertime activity would be to go to cities where they were hosting fejes, which are Irish uh, sort of festivals, dance competitions, and singing and recitation competitions. And we would go to a fej in a city, and my sister would compete as she was like a championship Irish dancer, and I would compete in recitation and singing. And I feel like that was super formative. And then we just did community theater and high school theater and stuff like that, and I just fucking loved it. Yes, explicit explicit ranking on iTunes now with the F-bomb. Content warning. Exactly. So when did you decide, okay... F this, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Was there a moment? Yeah, when I was in high school, I, you know, I was getting some, I went to a high school with a graduating class of 87 people, and half of them went to joint vocational school. So I was probably around 40 people in my class every day. It's very small. But I was, <laughs> I was getting leads in this very competitive market in, in like the high yeah, school musical. <laughs> exactly. So it, was like it, was, it was not, it was a small pond. But I loved it, and I felt I had this intuitive sense that I was good at it. And even I would watch soap operas. It's not a super high bar, due respect, but I would watch soap operas as a child and be like, I think I could do that better. As like a five-year-old, I would be like, I think I can do that better. I think I could cry tears that look more realistic than those tears. Audacious. But um, I remember... First saying, I think I might go into broadcast journalism, like on-camera, on-air broadcast journalism. I also I also floated at a very young age, I think I'm going to be a puppeteer or a muppeteer. 
And it was all sort of one degree away from what I wanted to actually do, which was um, theater and real, like acting, where you really show yourself. And it's not sort of like I'm playing a newscaster or I'm hiding behind a puppet. And I said to my guidance counselor across a desk, very similar to the relationship you are you and I are in right now, I remember saying I would like to go to a school nearby, Wright State University, and study theater. And she said, I think you might want to reconsider journalism. And I looked at her and I nod. It was great acting, award-winning acting. I was like, I, I will. I, and in my mind, I was like, go fuck yourself. I'm totally, I'm going to go study acting. I knew intuitively it was the right thing for me. And that is exactly what I did. And when you got to school, was there? Did you find any mentors there that helped you along in that process? Yeah. Any advice you got early to make sure you stayed on that journey? Well, it wasn't advice, but I received validation in that I was getting cast. I was getting. I just was very fortunate to get some really good casting. So I was playing roles I, that, yeah, that no 19-year-old should be playing. I was playing, you know, the, the female lead in Arthur Miller's The American Clock, which is just like, you know, it's it's ridiculous. But it, I loved it. It was great. Or, Did you do your Good Man, Charlie Brown? I never, I've never done it. I've done it in a... Oh, no, nobody wants it. Uh, I mean, they may want that show. I don't know that they need me in it. Um, but... Uh, I, I played. Nobody needed this. I played the witch in Into the Woods. It would be great. Uh, I don't know if I have all those notes, um, but Taming of the Shrew played Kate in Taming of the Shrew. Just like really juicy parts, and so I had the validation of that casting. It was very. It, it was emboldened me, but I did have a teacher, a few teachers there that, not that they were so full of praise or encouragement, but I just had great teachers at Wright State University. Um, Bruce Cromer was a great teacher. Bob Hetherington was a directing teacher, and this is somebody who is still very much a part of my life. This is somebody who I actually, I have a dream, because Bob has never lived in New York, but he is a dynamite director, and he's always sort of been in... Uh, edu- the educational context or in so universities or regional theater and I want him I would love to write a piece and have him direct it and I think before both of us die I would like to make sure that that happens so I met some collaborators there that I still you know really cherish and were you writing that as well? Were you creating things? Uh, lightly, lightly. Not fully yet. Not fully yet. But it was one of those situations where I was on the receiving end of so many wonderful external opportunities and so much good casting that my dance card was full. It wasn't really till I got to New York and I was like, oh, I'm when I'm in a big competitive market, I'm a fucking weirdo. Like, I don't slot easily. I don't look like a model. I don't sing like uh, Sutton Foster. I'm a weirdo. And I was like, I was... I was getting work almost immediately when I moved to New York. I was cast in an off-Broadway play at the American Jewish Theater. May she rest in peace. Like, I was, you know, like doing my little law and orders and things like that. But I was like, this is not 
that's where I was like, this isn't entirely satisfying. It's not enough. I need more stimulation than this. And I think I'm going to have to make the mold myself to really create things that I want to step into. And what was the first thing that you did? One of the first things that I did, um, Jason Kravitz and Robert Petkoff and some other lunatics did a thing called Rumble in the Red Room every Monday night on 42nd Street in this theater that now, that it's gone. And I can't remember, it was called the Red Room. It was this little storefront theater. And every Monday night, this group of people would put something up. Like they would be like, here's a five minute song I wrote and here's a three minute sketch that I wrote. I was doing an off-Broadway play with Jason Kravitz and he said, you know, if you ever wanna try your hand at putting something up, you can totally do it. And so that is where I started putting up my own work. And it started in very small bite-sized increments. And I started doing um, sort of an alternative comedy two-hander with a woman named Rebecca Finnegan, who is this incredibly gifted uh, performer and Broadway-quality performer, she, but she works in Chicago. But at that time, she was living in New York. And we would do, one of the first things that we ever did was, it was there was no spoken word. It was set to a piece of sort of like cocktail music. I think this exists somewhere on the internet. You could probably look at this. It oh, looked it looked like a two-woman magic act. It was like a lot of cla- like a lot of like Vegas kind of posturing, all choreographed, all set to music. But instead of magic tricks, we would make and eat food out of each other's mouths. So we would make a bowl of sear like we would hypnotize the other into a chair, you tip your head back, throw your mouth open, and we would make, and and it was just like the audience would go batshit. Like they would go crazy because it was sort of funny and sort of awful. It was sort of awesome and sort of nawsome. Like it was beautifully polished, but it was, it's sort of disgusting. And um, I think when we finally put that into a show that was reviewed in The Village Voice, the words tour de force of like deviled eggs or something like that was the poll quote, I believe. Tour de force, of something like that. What, what possessed what you? Possessed? <laughs> what the fuck were you thinking? No, what? I'm a weirdo, I told you. two parts of this. It's, so Jason comes to you yeah. and says, hey, if you want to put something up, you didn't at the time when he said that even know what you were going to do. What made you say, okay, I'll, I'll just do something because that I think is I think the hard part for so many it is it is I think it's that hunger for and I was perf- we met doing a, a, a show it's not like I didn't have performing opportunities but there's that part of me and it's really fully realized in me as a human being now there's that part of me that craves um, self-expression and m- just more I want it to be couture I want it to be exactly what I want it to be I want to be fully self-expressed even if it's the weirdness of some alternative comedy lady two-hander where we make and eat food out of each other's mouths like I want to I don't know I want it to be a full expression of my weirdness when you were creating stuff early in your career anything ever bomb oh yeah 
what do you mean like early I feel like I still bomb now like yeah and how did you reconcile that did, did you feel it? Did you not feel it? I feel failure. It, as a as an interviewer and a podcaster, this is the exact question. I ask people this question all the time, how they like name something, like share a failure, and how do you process failure? I feel it so keenly. Like it, it I have to take to bed sometimes. And there have been times where I've bombed so badly that I haven't written for an extent extended period of time afterwards like I I it's so painful it's so painful um so I almost have to wait for it to wash out of my system but not all it depends on how big the bomb is well who defines the bomb that's the the part of is it oh my god that bomb because I feel I was awful that bomb because the audience didn't respond or that bomb because the village voice called it a puke to force not a tour de force like what <laughs> exactly which one of those I think it's a combo platter I think it's a combo platter I think there are times when I feel like I've bombed and I book work like I may do an audition and be like oh that stunk up the room and I'll be like surprise you're the one that looked right for that part so you get it um but there are times when the audience has a non-reaction or a uh a violent you know a violent negative reaction where I mean I'm not headless like I'm a I'm a very perceptive person so um or you throw in a bad review in there like there are I will say this though if I have an no that's not even I was going to say if I have an overwhelmingly positive feeling about something sometimes it's a little bit of a force field or a shield against that sort of negative criticism but not always I can be completely in love with something and if somebody comes back hard at it and it's founded like there's something in there that I'm like oh yeah I I recognize there's something true in what you're saying it's very painful it, it takes me time and it takes me a lot of like talking and processing and kind of grieving it to get past it so, though I do continually put myself out there in lots of different ways, th- what social media, the curated highlight reel of social media doesn't always see, and I don't think people always recognize, is that there is failure and that there is pain and there's a reckoning that has to be, that you really have to process it, or I wouldn't get back up and continue making again. You must, you must yeah, have that too. I think... It's a person's trajectory is like the stock market in a strange way, <laughs> yeah. in that it's going to have its peaks and valleys, and you can only get to the next level if you have the valley and deal with the valley, yeah. and then build upon that, and then you peak, and then you just, if you keep focused and keep doing what you what you love to do, obviously you love to do this, yeah, you'll just keep climbing, but you're going to face it along the way you if if we bailed when every time that it got uncomfortable I think my life would look very different I think your life would look very different yeah Yeah. I don't know why I'm all about the stock market metaphor today but But bring it double down on it you don't take your money out of the market you don't get out yeah when it gets scary yeah you stay invested yeah you are a perfect example of someone who obviously stayed invested during those early moments and I'm also to extend your metaphor I'm all about the dollar cost averaging 
That was very fancy. Isn't it? Thanks, Susie Orman. Uh, I I am about um, you don't just, you continually, you continue to make those small investments. You don't just like buy low, sell high. You're not getting in only at like the perfect optimum time. You continually keep the work going. You continue to make those, even those small investments, because I do think that, I think I'm going to misuse a word here, when across the the lifetime of the creative investment, there's going to be, is aggregate the wrong word? There's going to be, uh, hopefully, hopefully history won't uh, prove otherwise, but like a, a, a march towards a payoff there. Or yeah, you never ma- know where it's going to come. I think I have to believe in that hope. I have to, you know, or else... It would be a very, it would be a very grim existence. So, speaking of things that are not grim, tell me about title of show and how that came together and how you got Hunter and Jeff. So this is a perfect example of this. Uh, we were making so Rebecca Finnegan and I were making this like weird alternative downtown comedy. We were performing at places like PS122 and Dixon Place, and we were really took a lot of our guidance and mentorship from the guys who had made Blue Man Group. Uh, my good friend, now ex-husband, was a Blue Man, and so I was. We were very much part of that community, and I was sort of like, "Well, that worked for them. I'm gonna sort of." I sort of was like, "I'll sort of lightly follow that course." So I was working in those venues, and. We, at some point, were growing our comedy act, and I was really interested in sort of very site-specific work, and we also wanted backup singer-dancers. So very sort of meta, self-referential work. We would write and rehearse these very complex... We would rehearse for two months for, like, a two-night gig, and it would reference people that we knew were going to be in the audience at the performance. So it would be like, we are here, you're here, Ken Davenport is here, look at his shirt. Like it would be super, super self-referential and meta. And we wanted backup singer-dancers. So early backup singer-dancer, Hunter Bell, Sparkle Vision Dancer. Course, that's exactly what I think of. Right? Sparkle Vision Dancer, Hunter Bell who, of course, went on to uh, write the book for title of show. And the the composer that I was collaborating with, composer slash musical director, was Jeff Bowen. Um, among, uh, it is actually, that group of people actually included some very, <laughs> people who went on to do some very awesome, interesting things. But um, we started working together, and I think that influenced both future collaborations with those guys, but also it was the seedlings of a meta self-referential style. It kind of grew out of those very site-specific numbers that we were, that whole title of show sort of tone kind of grew out of that work. So when they they started, uh, they decided that they were going to collaborate together, Hunter and Jeff, they had known each other before, and they were going to collaborate together, and they asked me if I would like to join them in what became title of the show. And I was, and I was like, I'm really busy, and I was fully corporate at the time. And I was like, let me think about it, and let me get back to you. Which is, if you hear that from me, it's usually the beginning of 
the one to no. It's my one to no, my two step no. And um, before I could call them back and say, you know what, I, I don't think so. Um, just because, and not no reflection on them. I love those guys, but I was just like over overstretched. Um, they came back and they said, we wrote you in. We wrote you in last night. And so you're in it. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. They gave you no choice. Kind of. I was like, okay. Have you spoken to them about why they did it other than obviously believing in your talents, but they... I didn't really, no. I was just like, okay, I'll do it. And you were in. But we were very tight socially as well. Like, we vacationed together, and so I was like, oh, guys, I don't want to do your little thing. It, what did you think of the idea or the... Thought? I loved it. I th- loved I, it. I'm a weirdo, so I was like, I, I love your weirdness. Oh, yeah, I loved it. And did you think in a million years that it would go on no. to... Dude, no. I mean, it's done all over now, right? So it's done everywhere. It's done all around the world. I can't tell you the number of people who have approached me in real life or come up to me uh, or, or approached me virtually and said, um, I'm Susan, I'm playing Susan. Alex Bornstein, who, who stars on um, Mrs. Maisel, just played Susan in a production in Barcelona. It's bizarre. It's it's really, it's fun and surreal and um, it's delightful. It's it's so it's so delightful. Yeah, that's another level of it. It's not that you helped create this. There, it's you. It's a there. version. Yeah. And when I go and I see it, because I do see it from time to time, uh, when I see it, it's like watching a Christmas pageant. Of a, of a chapter of your life. People are acting out a chapter of your life. And I, I'm taken, I'm swept away by, I'm like, oh yeah. For just for instance, there's a, I remember so clearly um, sitting at my desk, my laminated desk in my corporate office and writing, Jeff Bowen would, a way that we worked together when we started making stuff is he would call and leave musical, uh, like a tune he would leave a melody on my voicemail at work and then I would have my phone pressed to my ear at work and I would look like I was super busy and people would approach my desk and I'd be like hold on and I just keep replaying the voicemail and I would write the lyrics to a tune at work while the Sorry. phone were, was on your because I was listening yeah I was listening to the tune but if somebody approached my desk it just looked like I was transcribing a voicemail so I remember super clearly writing this little thing that's in title of show, just as an example, where I go, can't you see I'm dying inside? At my corporate job, can't you see I'm dying inside? If you shine a flashlight in my butt, you'd see I'm dying inside, right? I remember sitting at my desk writing it. So when I see a production of title of show, it's like a time machine and I'm swept away and I remember all the specific places I was when those things happened, but it is like watching a Christmas pageant that's depicting a chapter of our lives. It's so weird and awesome. Let's, and I can't believe anybody gives a shit, but rock the fuck on. It's a great show. I mean, it's well, just thanks, a Ken. great show. It's just I like it. People can relate yeah. to it. And just in case you ever want to do title of show, there's a clean version too. In case your high school wants to do it or your church group. There's a clean version without profanity. We'll throw up a link to that. So, will we? We'll we throw will. up. 
how do this is a question that I think a lot of entrepreneurs and writers and designers and directors have to deal with when they're coming up. You just talk about your work in your corporate job yeah. while you're creating stuff. Yeah. While you're, I mean, I can't imagine at Dixon Place you were getting a production contract and health insurance down there. So correct, you're doing other things. And the the challenge that I hear from a lot of folks is, I just don't have the time. I just don't have the time. To, oh, if only I had more time. If how did you find the time to do all this stuff? That is a really, really good question. I think part of it is, um, I, I just always want to recognize a few things here. I have the privilege, and it truly is a privilege, to be pretty healthy, though I, like most people in the world, do at times struggle with depression, anxiety. By and large, I'm pretty healthy, and I take pretty good care of myself. I don't drink. I don't do any drugs. I, I try to take pretty good care of myself. So I had the foundation of good health that I was working from, and I recognize that that's a privilege because not everybody has that because it does take energy. I'm also really organized, and I have an enormous amount of self-discipline. So I don't have children. All of these things matter. All of these things uh, that take time and take capacity and I just got super organized and I would make sure that I could really take care of my financial commitments I could make sure that I could pay my rent and later in life my mortgage or mortgages and I would do the work and then I would put down my day work and I would do my whatever my night work or my evening work was. And sometimes I, as long as, as I was outstanding at my job, this is what I always felt, as long as I was outstanding at my job, I could do things like write lyrics from a voicemail that Jeff Bowen, you know, I could do some creative, creative things. I could make before emails, I could make flyers for whatever show I was doing on the copy machine. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I know what you mean. <laughs> I was a company manager for 10 years that was also like producing shows on the side. And That's exactly every it. Supply every post it you could get your hands yeah, on. So, um, and to be honest with you, I have been freelance now. Um, I finally left an office job not that long ago. I'm going to really? say within the last five years. Oh, yeah, I worked all through title of show. So I would work during the day. That's what I mean. I have an enorm enormous self-discipline. I would work during the day. I took it down to about four days a week at that time. And I would be very, and my, the people <laughs> I worked just, with knew. That just wrecked me. You took it down to four yeah. days a week while you're doing it. And then I took it down to three. Like there was this inversion happened where slowly I realized I could make my living. Uh, I am a real, I'm not a bohemian. Like I, I want to know where rent is coming from. I want to know where, you know, I, I'm not a couch surfer. Like I like buying real estate. So, but this inversion happened where I was sort of like, oh, I'm, I'm, growing into myself, I'm making more money as an artist. And so I think it's safe for me to now let this job go. But I, I always think I wrote this into an essay that I wrote years and years ago for broadway.com about why I keep my day job, why I kept my day job through um, title of show. The woman who played the maid on the Jeffersons, the woman who played the maid on the Jeffersons kept her day job throughout 
until that show got successful, until she was like, I'm certain that this is a real thing. She kept her day job and she's not the only one. I think there are more people, there are probably people listening to this right now that are kind of doing double duty. So I think it was probably that desire to have structure and to make sure I knew where, how the bills were being paid that kind of kept me there. But I will also say this, that structure of having to get up, get showered, get dressed, work out before work, get to work, and then sit down and be focused. Having, it's a little bit like you want something done, ask a busy person. That structure really kept me right on track. And so it was, it made it very clear how to calendar, okay, if we have a show, if we have a performance of this first iteration of title of show and it's going up in two months and we have that date on the calendar, very important to have those goal dates on the calendar, then I kind of know how I have to live my life in and amongst this office job. So I really thrive with the, a structure. And when I first, and it wasn't that long ago, was like, okay, I'm going freelance. I'm going freelance now, really for the first time as an adult. It has taken a while for me to understand how to structure myself because I went straight from kindergarten to school to college to graduate school to kind of like I did a stint at the Guthrie, but then like working in offices. And it's the first time this as an adult right now is really the first time that I'm self-structured. And I'm just I feel like I'm just now getting the hang of it. Yeah, it sounds like the big takeaway for everyone out there who doesn't have your self-discipline that obviously yeah. came with you a bit of it anyway the idea is to work real hard at structuring your day if it doesn't have structure yeah calendaring it yeah up at a certain yeah time. and also i i have um students and clients who i coach who really want i think you probably have a lot of people in your life too who really want to be makers and they really want to originate work and be uh Maybe they're an interpretive artist, or maybe they're, they do something completely different, but they want to be a creative artist, an originating artist. And sometimes the struggle, the block to that can be as mundane as, I can't stop looking at my fucking phone. I am addicted to phone games and Candy Crush. And I'm like, you gotta, if you're going to kind of do what we're describing here, you have to, there are some blocks you're going to have to break. Yeah I, always, yeah, I always tell people who say to me, oh, I don't have time to do that. They tell me they really want to do something. I want to write a show. I want to be on Broadway. I want to do that. I, I just don't have the time. I always volunteer to be like, give me your calendar. Yeah. Or let me follow you around for a day. Yeah. I bet I can find some time for you. We just don't realize. Yeah. Now, I do, I do think there are some people that have, uh, like I was saying earlier, there may be a health thing. There may be a thing where it's like, I have to take care of my ailing parent. I have a child. But I give you J.K. Rowling. I give you people who really find a time. But I'm dollars to donuts, I'm usually, when people are like, I can't find the time, I'm like, what's the block? What is it? What is the block? What is taking the time? Because that time and time and time again, it's your version of let me have your calendar. I'm like, what is so what is it? Just tell me what it is. Let's just cut to the chase. What's the block? Yeah. 
I want to get to this work that you're doing right now, but before I do, you you, you do a lot of different things. You write, yeah, you yeah. perform, you actually went back to broadcast journalism in a way with yeah. your, your web series on yeah. Broadway.com, which is fantastic. That's so funny. I never thought of that. I wouldn't call it journalism. <laughs> I would. It's more like a bag of baloney, but it's fantastic. But I take it very seriously. So, I really do. It's so fun. Uh, how, the, you know, some people will say to achieve success in this world, you have to pick one thing yeah. and just do that one thing. I've been to those seminars. I've, I've had people, I've, I've been on the receiving end of that advice. And your success seems to be because you do different things. How do you, how do you do the different thing? What would you say to someone that says you can only do one thing? I would, I would present them with my life and say, um, I, my path looks different than whatever it is that you have in your mind or whatever that really pat piece of advice that sort of one-size-fits-all piece of advice that you're selling. Um, I, I just, you know, people are more complex than that. I feel like such a curious person. And I feel like a person, not to put myself in this in the, this company that I'm about to name drop, but I was interviewing Sarah Bareilles the other day. And Sarah is somebody who does a lot of... She, she does a lot of different interesting things. And I felt... A, a kinship with that because I all I want to do is keep learning and keep engaging in new ways and if I was consigned to doing one thing even working at a corporate job was interesting to me because there's something about I'm for those of you who are listening and not here with me and Ken I'm sort of making love to his desk those of, there's something about this that's interesting to me too there's something about uh there's so many things that interest me. And so I want to taste all of those desserts. Like, I, I love teaching. I think it's probably the thing I'm best at. But I don't want to, like, sit down at a university and do it all the time, full time. I think I would feel very confined by that. I love performing. I don't want to do it all the time. I don't want to do it all the time because even that is sort of a grind that, if I may seg, the the thing that I'm doing now is I sat down and very consciously, a, a, a collaborator that I've worked with for many decades now is this woman, Laura Camion. She was the first producer of Title of Show, and then Kevin McCollum came on, but she stayed with it, and they took it all the way to Broadway. Can you fucking believe it? Um, she and I have done a lot of stuff together, and when I was fully just like went full corporate, and I was like, I'm tired of auditioning, I'm burnt out, Laura Camion is the person who would say, I wrote a little play, and I wonder if you would do this little play that I wrote, and you only have to do it for two nights. And she sort of kept me back in the game. She sort of just kept... She would pull me back in. Um, so Laura Camion and I have done a lot of really fun, interesting shit together. And we wanted to, in this chapter of our lives, we wanted to make something. And we sat down and had lots of, because we both have a lot of skills and a lot of interests, there were a lot of things we could have made. But we had a very thoughtful, conscious, intentional conversation about, we made lists. Like, what are the things that we can do and that we love to do what are the things that we can do but we could really take our leave what are the things we can do but we really are we hate doing it and we're really like tired of doing it 
And we tried to braid those things that we can do and that we love to do. We wanted to braid it into a project and what we landed on was a podcast. So we are just about to launch this pod. We've been working on it for probably about six months. Uh, really like working on it like a full-time job for about six months. And it's called The Spark File. It's a podcast about creativity, but it is, uh, that is a departure point. It is fun and funny and I love it so much. But my point is it really consciously braids together all of the things that we love and love to do. So this is actually something talk to me in a year I may feel differently but where I'm like I actually feel like I could do this all day every day because it is a synthesis of it's a little bit it has a little thread of that teaching it's performative it's engaging with other people as we interview them and as Laura and I surprise each other with these sparks of creativity and share these stories with each other so this is actually something again talk to me in a year but I'm like I I'm, when I'm doing it, I'm like, God damn, I love doing this so much. And I'm like, yeah, because you really synthesized all of these things together that you love. So, so yeah. You created this dream job for yourself. Kind of. And it's no yeah. surprise to me that you love doing it. Because I love doing it. Because you were like, what are the things I love? But, to, but to answer your original question, I think I'm, I'm a multi-passionate person because I, until now, again, talk to me in a year, but until now, not... Everything, there were things that I got from the corporate world. There were things, and my, I was good at that, and I felt good doing it, but it wasn't enough. And doing a show, for me, for me, I know for some people that's enough. For me, it's not enough. I also love to write and to be self-expressed in that way. I wouldn't want to do it full-time. Like, But this, so maybe this is the thing that sort of like bundles it all together. Fingies crossed. And did you think about a business model for it when you were coming? Were you like, well, one day we can make money doing this? Do you think? Yeah. You yes. One hundred percent. You do. And I think that's the. I wish I had more of it. I wish I had a little more of your brain, frankly. And maybe I'll, after this podcast is done, I'll crack it open and just like spoon it out, um, take a little taste. You know, I'm a weirdo, Ken. Um, I wish I had a little bit more business acumen, but I think we have already. Uh, talked extensively about how we can, not to be gross, but how we can monetize it and um, what that will look like when we would love to tour live. I've, uh, I can't wait. We've done some live podcasting I, I, already. already. Mm-hmm. We're getting ready. This is so fun. We're partnering with arts organizations like the Metropolitan Opera to podcast live. And on those days when we podcast live with the Met, it will be... Um, opera-related sparks of creative, you know, fascination. So, yeah, we do think about that for sure. I, I love that you do. There is this strange badge of honor with the phrase starving artist sometimes. I'm not into like, it, dude. It's like, why? It's not for starving me. is a bad thing. Why would anyone, oh, I'm, a, I'm struggling, I'm doing the thing. It's like is the, it a badge of honor? I, for some people, I is think it? They, they don't think that... Making, they think that making money is a bad thing. Like that it contaminates like, the purity? The yes. Okay. Frankly, Andy Warhol, which I butchered this quote all the time, was... Oh, like, do it again now. Yeah, it's like making money is 
art. Like there's an art to make yeah. money and it allows you to actually make more art. Yeah. When you get paid for something, you can do more. I can actually see both. I, I can see, walk around that, that sentiment of uh, the, like the nobility and the purity of the starving artist and that, um, you know, the influence of money hasn't contaminated the purity of the expression. I can, I, there's something about that that I can see 100%. And I'm, an all, I'm also like a real live human being living in the world. And I'm thrilled, but absolutely over the moon thrilled by the prospect of getting to spend my days making something that I love, that is super meaningful to me, and I hope to God is of service to other people. And also making my living doing that. To me, that would be... I feel like if I can have a nice, long, healthy run of that, then I could probably die pretty happy. So but, visit SusanBlackwell.com. Or go, go to thesparkfile.com or any place you get your podcasts. And I know that not everything is for everybody, but I really hope you, listener, are you listening to me? I hope that you um, give it a shot, and I hope that you download it and enjoy it, and I hope that you five-star rate it, review it positively. And if you don't like it, you don't have to listen to it again. But I think you might. I know that well. <laughs> uh, my last question, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you. and Which which, Aladdin, which version? The Broadway one, of Okay, course. go ahead. Uh, and <laughs> I can't believe I've been asked you that. I know. What an insult. And grants you one wish. Yeah. What's the one thing that drives you crazy about Broadway? the theater industry here in New York City that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant? Cost. Cost, uh, ticket ticket price, but also the the barrier to entry as an audience member or as a... It's, it's very high. It's very high. And on one hand, it makes it super special, doesn't it, to actually produce a show on Broadway, to be a part of that show on Broadway, to be in the audience. But I wish that it was more available. I think that's the the genie wish. Also, can I? I'll take a second wish. Thanks. You didn't offer it. Thanks. I'll take it. Eight shows a week is a lot of shows. I feel like that. Like that seems totally inhumane to me. But I don't know. I guess that's why people who really love 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 it and can't live without it should be doing that. It's an arbitrary number. I blogged about this. I think in my first year blog. You know, they made it up. However, many decades ago, by the way, to satisfy demand at the time. Uh huh. And it's just stuck, and we're stuck with it. The challenge is some. But shows, isn't the biz- whole business model built around it now? Exactly. Yeah. That's the problem. So some shows could do ten shows a week. Some shows could only do four or five, or have an audience. Look, title of the show is a perfect example. Yeah. Like, you could have run how. Many yeah. years longer if you were doing three shows a week. The problem is, what do you do if you're doing less than eight now? No one's going to take less money. You can't. Like, performer salary. Yeah, the business model is all built on it. The high. theater rents are probably built to all of it. Everything. Everything. So we're, we're, we're I hate to say this, because it's sort of stuck with it until we come up with some different model. So listener, I will implore you out there now, fix it. Come up with something different and let us know about it. Great. Uh, thank you so much for being uh, here. It's a pleasure. It, thanks for letting me talk to you, listeners. I hope that you enjoyed this. And you can hear more from Susan on the podcast, which has already debuted now that you're listening. That's right. To this. The Spark File. Go get it. I hope you love it. 
I do. I love it. I've already listened to it. It's amazing. Thanks so much, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye. I hope you enjoyed listening to Susan Blackwell today. I hope she inspires you to get out there and create some theater of your own. Don't forget our super conference is coming up November 16th and 17th. We have two fantastic keynote speakers, Joe Iconis and Heidi Schreck, both going to drop some knowledge on you. Uh, If you're loving this new podcast season, I hope you'll do me a favor and review us on Apple Podcast. It helps other theater makers and theater fans find us. Uh, and hopefully get inspired to create more theater wherever they are in the world. So do me a favor and go ahead and give us that review on Apple Podcasts. For more information on Susan Blackwell and her new podcast, The Spark File, follow her on Instagram, at Susan Blackwell. Uh, do follow me on Instagram as well, at Ken Davenport B-Way. It's where I drop all the new information about all my shows and everything we're doing over here at The Producer's Perspective. And now, drum roll please, it's time for the hashtag Songwriter of the Week. We We put the spotlight on a brand new songwriter out there uh, and allow you to listen to some new musical theater music. So you're going to hear today a song called Myrtle's Lament. It's a song written by Jason Graywood. Uh, If you like what you hear, you can find more of his music over on his website, jasonthgraywood.com. That's J-A-C-I-N-T-H. G-R-E-W-O-O-D-E dot com. Uh, Email me, I'll send you the link if uh, you didn't catch that. Okay, go check it out. Enjoy Myrtle's Lament. Support emerging writers all over. And we will see you next week with a brand new episode of the Producers Perspective Podcast. Why do you haunt me? Why do you haunt me? What do you want me to do or to say? Should I say that I was wrong? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.